Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On the show today, a history lesson on post-war economic recovery in Europe. Matt Klein talks to economist, writer, and Council on Foreign Relations senior fellow Ben Steele about his new book, The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. They talk about the formation of the plan, which was named for Secretary of State George C. Marshall, as well as what we've learned about post-war reconstruction in the time since the plan was first introduced. Here's their conversation. Ben Steele, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So we're going to talk today about the Marshall Plan and the start of the Cold War. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is that the simplified version of American history that a lot of us learn in high school is that after we win World War II, we wanted to avoid making the mistakes that are made after World War I. So we helped our conquered enemies rebuild and prosper and kept a big military presence in Europe and Japan. Now, this isn't wrong, but you show pretty clearly that it skips a few steps. By 1946, the U.S. had removed many of the soldiers that had been in Europe. The focus in the U.S. was on returning to normalcy and on doing the things that were unusual and considered wartime measures. Meanwhile, in Europe, the situation was not improving at all. Uh, Give us some more of the context of what was going on at this time. Right. Well, if we back up to 1945 and the end of the fighting in Europe, Truman has only been president for one month now. And at the time, he's actually determined to fulfill FDR's pledge that he had made publicly, openly, at uh, the Tehran Allied Leaders Conference uh, in 1943 to withdraw American troops from Europe within two years of the fighting. So there are over three million American troops in Europe at the time. Uh, He starts the drawdown almost immediately, But by 1946, the uh, American military establishment realizes that it has a big problem because Stalin is demonstrating quite clearly that he is not satisfied with his newly expanded borders and his new security buffer in Central and Eastern Europe, and he begins pressing territorial claims to the south on both Turkey and Iran. He, in fact, refuses to withdraw troops from Iran that had been stationed there during the war, under treaty, and he only backs down when Truman sends in a military flotilla. The watershed moment really comes in February of 1947, when the British government tells the State Department that it is effectively bankrupt and can no longer continue to afford to keep its troops in Greece, where it's protecting the government against communist rebels. Uh, So the United States is going to have to fill the gap. The military is very worried at this point. They realize if they don't take some sort of action to reinforce their own security sphere in uh, Western Europe, in the parts of Europe that Stalin does not already control, then the United States' own vital economic and security interests could be threatened. 
and they'd begin looking for new and innovative ways to do this. And uh, one idea that begins percolating as early as 1946 is to leverage America's economic dominance in the world, which is really now at its apex, in order to counter the Soviet conventional force um, superiority in Europe. So this is the idea behind it. America at the time accounts for about one half of world manufacturing output. And so the idea is that we can use this dominance in order to reinforce our allies in Western Europe and allow them to provide for their own security. So the irony here is that that you mentioned that the Americans are start becoming focused on the need for engaging more seriously with Europe because of what's going on in Greece and Turkey. And you describe in the book that in many ways, this was something that Stalin was expecting, that he considered this to be sort of part of the Anglo-American sphere, but that it was this second response that you described as the, ultimately the more substantive response of focusing on, on France and Italy and the UK that really actually got Stalin a lot more concerned. So kind of give us a sense of what was the nature of the surprise and how he ended up reacting to that. Well, by the time the uh, British come to the uh, Americans and effectively um, hand the Americans the key to the imperial kingdom in February of, of 47, Stalin had already shifted his focus away from the Mediterranean and towards Central Europe, um, Germany uh, in particular. So whereas the Truman Doctrine is focused primarily on Greece and Turkey, there is an emphasis in Truman's speech on using economic and financial assistance broadly to buttress countries that are faced with aggression. The key moment comes in March and April of 1947 when General Marshall, who just becomes uh, Secretary of State, goes off to Moscow for six weeks of negotiations with Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov and with uh, Stalin to try to reach um, some accommodation over the future of Germany, to try to achieve a peace treaty, to try to uh, unify the country and end the occupation. And it's here um, that the uh, Americans come to the conclusion that they can no longer follow the Yalta-Potsdam framework for cooperation with the Soviets. Marshall becomes convinced that Stalin is only looking to undermine Western Europe to produce as much chaos as possible in order to increase his influence. And it's at that point um, that the Americans decide that they are going to launch an economic recovery program. So let's talk more about the situation in Germany, because you note two things that are kind of interesting contrasts with each other. First, Germany at the end of World War II, despite the bombing and despite the Soviet ground invasion, actually had a lot more manufacturing capacity than it did before World War II started. And the other thing is that despite all this, the German economy had essentially collapsed and the Germans were more or less dependent on subsidies from the occupying forces to survive. So how did this happen? Well, this was mainly the fault of the United States, which since 1944 had as official policy in Germany the so-called Morgenthau Plan to dismember and deindustrialize the country, to effectively turn it into a giant pasture land. 
FDR's Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, who was the brains behind this plan, um, had been warned that this would produce a humanitarian and geostrategic catastrophe for the United States, but he would not be deterred. He was uh, determined to punish Germany harshly, and he was also committed to FDR's vision of pursuing some sort of permanent peacetime cooperation with the Soviet Union. So by 1947, it becomes clear to the Truman administration that the Morgenthau plan is a, a disaster and that the only way they are going to rehabilitate not just Western Germany, but Western Europe more broadly, is by reindustrializing Western Germany as quickly as possible. The French idea of ripping up Germany's uh, factories, its uh, industrial capacity, and somehow transporting it back to, to France is never going to work. So the, the Americans really do a 180 in 1947, and this becomes an item of, of great concern to Joseph Stalin. So the, the fundamental difference between the United States and the Soviet Union in Moscow in the spring of 47 is over the future of Germany. Neither can afford to have a unified Germany as an ally of the other. So there's really no basis for a compromise at this point. And that is, in the book, you say arguably when the Cold War begins is at this moment of recognition that there are inherently opposed interests in Germany. Is that a fair characterization? It's fair. Uh, the one caveat I would put in is that even after the stalemate in Moscow, Stalin still believes that the Americans ultimately have no choice but to cooperate with him um, in unifying Germany because uh, he sees that the Americans are withdrawing all their troops. So what else are they going to do? So remarkably, Stalin continues to speak optimistically about some form of cooperation with the United States, not just in Germany, but globally. In fact, only weeks before Marshall's iconic Harvard address, um, in which he introduces the idea of uh, a massive European aid scheme, Stalin directs a Soviet negotiating delegation to reach agreement with the Americans on producing a unified interim government in Korea. That only collapses after Marshall's speech when Stalin realizes that the Americans are not about to disengage from Europe. And he predicts accurately that this economic plan will ultimately lead not just to more American political engagement in Europe, but ultimately to military re-engagement. Now, see, that's particularly interesting because, as you described, that the genesis of the plan in many ways was to avoid a sustained military presence in Europe, and Precisely. yet it ended up leading to much bigger. Can you kind of explain how that worked out? Right. Well, after uh, Marshall's uh, speech in June of 1947, um, in which Marshall does not close the door to Soviet participation in a Marshall Plan. Marshall never actually uh, uses the term Marshall Plan himself. 
But uh, Stalin is intrigued by the possibility that the uh, Americans, who he is convinced are entering the final stage of the collapse of capitalism, would be forced to bail out their own industries by giving Europe uh, billions of dollars in gifts. So he thinks ultimately he might be able to get this aid with no strings attached. But his own spies in Washington and London, in particular Donald McLean and Guy Burgess, are delivering a steady stream of information making clear that the United States has uh, geostrategic uh, aims in the Marshall Plan that it is not about to relinquish. Stalin comes to the conclusion that the U.S. is seeking a permanent political and military presence in Europe, that it is now planning to reindustrialize Western Germany and to turn it into the industrial fulcrum of the Marshall Plan. And most importantly, he realizes that he could potentially lose control of his own satellites in Eastern Europe. In particular, the Czechs and the Poles show far too much enthusiasm for their own good for Marshall's proposal. And when the Czechs refuse to back down and take no from an answer from Stalin, he begins crushing one after another all the remaining coalition governments in Central and Eastern Europe. Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. The Czechoslovak coalition government was actually a legitimate one, elected in 1946 with two-thirds small-D Democrats. In February of 1948, Stalin instigates a communist coup to push the Democrats permanently out of power. And this is really, truly when the Cold War begins. As I explain in the book, the Berlin blockade, which begins in the spring of uh, 1948, is again a reaction to the Marshall Plan. And Stalin is trying to use his leverage in Berlin to convince the Americans not to go forward with plans for creating a West German state. It's at this point that the United States realizes that there really is no alternative to military re-engagement because the French and the British will not go along with the State Department's vision of unifying Europe economically unless the Americans can provide security guarantees. The French in in particular are saying, look, what happens if Germany at some point in the future refuses to provide us with coal? If we're not self-sufficient, we won't be able to defend ourselves. Or the Soviets may take over Western Germany and cut off our coal supplies. If we're going to go forward into this vision of an integrated Western Europe, you, the United States, will have to provide firm security guarantees. The launch of NATO in April of 1949, one year after passage of the Marshall Aid legislation, becomes what the State Department itself refers to as, quote-unquote, a military ERP, a military European recovery program. And without this military component, NATO, I argue in the book, the Marshall Plan would never have succeeded. We've danced around it a bit, but I think it's now a good time to actually 
go into the details of what exactly the Marshall Plan was and was not. So what was the economic recovery program? Well, first, of course, there's the aid component, which is um, very significant and what uh, most of the commentary over the decades has focused on. So why don't we start there? The United States provided over the four years of the Marshall Plan from 1948 to 1952, $13.2 billion in grants and aid that today would be close to $140 billion. But as a percentage of U.S. GDP, 1.1% over the period, an equivalent Marshall Plan today would be worth about $800 billion. So this was a pretty significant commitment of resources from the United States, particularly when you consider how deep the recession was in the United States in 1946. Um, with the collapse of government spending in the United States after the Second World War, GDP actually fell by 11.5% in uh, 1946. So the United States was making a very significant investment. Economists have really struggled to identify the Keynesian mechanisms by which this might have happened. For example, did this martial aid allow the Western European countries to import more than they would otherwise have been able to given their meager reserves of dollars and gold? And the answer is yes, but the impact is relatively small. It couldn't explain the massive increase in output over that period, uh, over 60%. Was it that it allowed more government spending than would have been possible otherwise? Well, actually, no. Across the Marshall countries, government spending as a percentage of GDP actually fell during that period. So it wasn't that. So what was really going on? Um, the most important features of the Marshall Plan are very difficult to quantify. George Kennan, who's really the geostrategic architect of the Marshall Plan, always emphasized that the main impact of the aid was going to be psychological in Europe. That was, it had to be a four-year commitment from the United States so that the Europeans could see that unlike after World War I, the United States was not going to disengage. The United States was going to be in this for the long run. And that indeed did have a significant impact in Europe in terms of stimulating private business and private investment. The knowledge that the Americans were really permanently committed to the recovery of Europe. And the second thing that I would emphasize is this remarkable change in policy towards Germany. And perhaps the most remarkable success of the Marshall Plan is how quickly Germany was reindustrialized and how the United States quite consciously replaced itself as the main capital goods provider for Europe with Germany. That is, it quickly restored Germany to its traditional role as a capital goods exporter and thereby rebalanced trade within Europe while making Germany self-sustaining. It really was um, a remarkable success in that regard. 
So another part of the Marshall Plan, which is difficult to quantify, but you you stress as being important in the book, is this idea that governments would coordinate and integrate their economic, well, not necessarily planning, but their their approach to what their economies needed, and that they would encourage trade and investment across borders in a way that really didn't exist before. And this was, in many ways, sort of an American initiative pushing them to do that. Can you give us some more kind of context and explanation of how that how that worked? That's right. This component of the Marshall Plan, uh, European economic and political integration, came from one State Department figure in particular, and that was the Undersecretary of Economic Affairs, Will Clayton. Uh, he was quite convinced that for Europe to recover quickly and sustainably, it would have to, in some sense, model itself after the United States. He was extremely ambitious and uh, was determined almost overnight to uh, achieve things that Europeans had barely dreamed about, for, for example, creating a customs union, which didn't actually come about until uh, 1968. But this program of steady, permanent European integration was a a key objective of the Marshall Plan. And remarkably, the French in particular had to be dragged along kicking and screaming at times. The French, uh, we forget today, were almost as ruthless an occupying force in Germany in 1946 as the Soviet Union was. So the United States had to do a rather remarkable job of uh, coercive persuasion to bring the French along in this vision. Yes, you have a line in the book that within the U.S. government that de Gaulle was considered about as big an opponent of American policy as Stalin. Can you kind of elaborate more on that? Yeah, the Americans had uh, two main political aims in France. Uh, One was to get the communists out of government, which they did um, in May of 1947, just before Marshall's speech, and keep them out of government, but also keep the Gaullists, the right, out of government. De Gaulle was um, not uh, positive about any sort of permanent uh, cooperation with the United States. Um, He had nary a kind word to say um, uh, for the Marshall Plan. Um, And in fact, there's evidence that I talk about in the book that uh, once Stalin realized that he wasn't going to be able to get the communists back into government in France, that he was actually determined surreptitiously to help the uh, Gaullists in order to undermine the Marshall Plan. So it was critical to the State Department to maintain uh, this centrist alliance within France, keeping out both the far right and the far left. So one of the things that a few people remember now, given, you know, sort of the typical story told in American high schools anyway, is that after the war, Germany had very large war reparation obligations that are supposed to be paid to the allies. And one of the things that's interesting that you describe in the book is how martial aid was structured in a way to essentially wipe out those reparations. Can you kind of explain how that was done? Yes, that that was critical. No one would trade with Germany after the war since uh, Germany had so many unpaid creditors around the continent. So think about it. Let's say you were a, a, a British company uh, wanting to export something into Germany. You would never extend Germany any sort of credit because you would then go to the bottom of, of the queue of creditors. 
Um, so the United States had to find some mechanism to integrate West Germany once again into a European economic space. So how did they do it? Well, they wiped out through various mechanisms Germany's internal and external debt, and they also made themselves effectively the dip financers, uh, the debtor-in-possession debtor financers, the um, senior creditor in Germany. The United States told the French, for example, that no one would get paid back a dime from Germany until the United States got paid back. So it's quite interesting that although almost all martial aid to Western Europe was in the form of grants, to Germany it was legally in the form of, of credits, loans, not because the United States ever expected to get paid back. Indeed, it never it was never going to ask for this money back, but it was a, a mechanism to give the United States leverage in negotiations with the French. Um, to say that you, the French, can continue to fight us, can continue to try to get reparations from Germany, you will never succeed, or you can take the sure thing, martial aid. But if you do take martial aid, then you must cooperate in this economic integration agenda. One of the most important initiatives that reintegrated Germany into the European trading sphere was the creation of a European Payments Union in 1950. And that actually lasted much longer than had been planned. It was only wound down in 1958. But the United States underwrote the EPU with $350 million in working capital. That's about $3.5 billion today effectively guaranteeing Germany's trade commitments. So now a British exporter to Germany didn't need to worry about uh, getting uh, paid back by Germany. Um, the, the, what, a, a multilateral monthly settlement system was created by the United States, underwritten by the United States, so no one had to worry about credit risk anymore. And that was truly an innovative mechanism to reintegrate Germany into Western Europe. That's right. So the payments union you describe as being an answer to something called the, the currency curtain that, uh, that existed around Germany, the idea that trade between any European country had to be settled in dollars. How exactly did they kind of get over that? Right. Well, at the time, it's hard for us to imagine today, but gold is still the foundation of the international monetary system. And the U.S. dollar has special credibility in the world, given that the U.S. at the end of the war controls about two-thirds of the monetary gold stock. So the U.S. dollar is really the only credible surrogate for gold. And Europe has minimal reserves at the end of the war of either dollars or gold. So how are they going to trade with each other? So the United States creates this multilateral settlement system where on a monthly basis, credits and debits among the countries are netted out and only net payments are ever made in either dollars or gold. And this was a remarkable mechanism by which to conserve 
uh, Europe's meager reserves of gold and dollars after the war. And it had uh, an enormous effect on boosting intra-Western Europe trade. It was actually far more uh, successful than the United States had wanted in that it had been envisioned that after the EPU would be wound down, that West, Western Europe would become globally integrated to a, a greater degree than it would be integrated within itself. But actually, intra-European trade grew far more uh, robustly, and that became a permanent feature of the European landscape. One of the interesting critiques that you mentioned in the book at the time that was going on was someone named Henry Hazlitt saying that this idea of a dollar shortage was essentially a myth and the Europeans could have gotten over it just by devaluing mm-hmm. their currencies. Now, what do you make of that? Can you explain kind of the nature of the critique and whether it made sense? Hazlitt was in fact reflecting at the time what would be considered almost common sense today that uh, if your exports are, are not competitive, that uh, if you are fixing your your currency, you could should consider unfixing it so that the currency can depreciate. But at the time, really, countries, were, in particular the United States, uh, were committed to a fixed but adjustable exchange rate system. In the United States, there was still a deep residue of concern that the Europeans would go back, as they had in the early 1930s, to a a stratagem of of continuous competitive devaluations, and there was a lot of resistance to that in the United States. But after countries followed Britain in 1949 uh, after it devalued by 30% and started devaluing themselves, it did have a significant uh, effect on reducing European trade deficits. At the time, this, this idea of introducing flexible exchange rates as a basis of a new international monetary system was really considered to be too foreign. Uh, it was considered to be a sign of chaos and economic anarchy rather than to be a system as such. So the United States really had to provide some sort of uh, mechanism to ease countries back into a liberal trade regime. Purely flexible exchange rates would not have done it at the time, at least not politically. So in addition to France, one of the other major countries that turned out to be opposed to some of the bits of the Marshall Plan was the UK, because the idea of European integration at a continent-wide level, at least the Western half, didn't really fit with their imperial priorities. Can you kind of get into that more and, and explain sort of the tensions that the UK had with the US and with the rest of Europe? Yes, there, there, were, there were deep tensions between the um, Attlee Labour government in Britain and the State Department over the American uh, European integration ag- agenda. The British made quite clear then, um, as they are making clear now, Uh, that they do not consider themselves fundamentally to be just another European power, uh, that they were a global power, and they were quite insistent that they had a a special relationship with the United States that the State Department did not recognize at the time. Uh, So really, the British had to be uh, dragged into a lot of these uh, arrangements like the European Payments Union. They, they, they were not fond of them, but they were desperately in need of the aid. 
Now, once the Marshall aid starts to flow and countries start to begin to implement their proposed investment projects, you describe some interesting contrast between France, Italy, and the UK in terms of how each of these governments approach them. Yeah. Can you kind of get into that more and what they chose to focus on? Very different. Uh, the Americans were really quite schizophrenic about how they discussed the aid. On the one hand, they were quite insistent that the plan for using the funds come from Europe itself and that it should be done, of course, on a, on a combined, integrated uh, basis. But on the other hand, they were quite determined to make sure that this money was well used as they defined it. Um, so there was quite a, a lot of conditionality that the United States tried to impose. And I explain in, in the book really how unsuccessful the United States was in this regard. The British primarily used their aid to retire debt. The United States was not happy uh, in any way with um, British economic policy. They did not like uh, Britain's policy of nationalizing industries. Having said that, the State Department was ultimately convinced um, that it was vital to the success of the Marshall Plan politically for the United States to support what they called the NCL, non-communist left. They felt that the non-communist left in countries like Britain had democratic legitimacy. Um, And by bolstering the non-communist left, the United States was making these countries more resistant to the potential attractions of communism. In the cases of France and Italy are really quite fascinating because the two countries went in entirely diametrically opposed directions. In France, the United States um, was constantly badgering the French government to pursue fiscal and monetary stabilization. And the French were determined to use their martial aid mostly to support the so-called Monet Plan for industrial modernization. And the United States was constantly over the years cutting off aid and then restarting it when the French government would collapse and reform itself because ultimately the State Department came to the conclusion that keeping the communists out of government was the ultimate uh, objective. And by pushing the French too far away from a program that had public support, they were only hurting themselves in that objective. In the case of Italy, the United States really wanted to have the country pursue something like the Monet Plan for Industrial Modernization in the country. But the Italians were really firm what we would call neoliberals today and were determined to use their martial aid to pursue fiscal and monetary stabilization as quickly as possible. And so they too understood that the primary objective of the State Department was ultimately to keep the Italian communists out of power. That they were able to do. Um, The public was quite wedded to cooperating with the United States in order to get martial aid. So once again, the United States let the Italians, as the French, go off and pursue their own means to economic salvation. And, and quite frankly, this, this approach was successful. You know, the French went their way and achieved recovery. The Italians went their own way and ultimately uh, achieved their recovery. 
But the, the communists in all these countries were kept out of power and these countries um, maintained themselves as firm allies of the United States for the many decades of the Cold War. One of the most telling predictions that I came across early on in the Marshall Program was from Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who had written to uh, the Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Arthur Vandenberg, who was critical in passing the Marshall Aid re- legislation. He wrote in October of 47, quote, the recovery of Western Europe is a 25 to 50 year proposition. And the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad. And how right he was. If you fast forward to 1989 and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the uh, Soviet alliances like the Warsaw Pact crumbled almost overnight, whereas the American-created alliances, NATO and the European Union in particular, were as attractive as ever. And of course, the newly liberated countries in Central and Eastern Europe were immediately clamoring to get in. So one of the interesting things in the book, speaking speaking of that subject, is that you end the book with a chapter mostly focusing on the period after 1989, which is something I quite frankly, would not have been expecting given the, you know, the historical focus. But you make sort of an interesting contrast mm-hmm. between how the West treated the newly liberated countries of Eastern Europe uh, in the 1990s versus how the U.S. was dealing with Western Europe at the end of World War II. Can you kind of get into that contrast and how you think it maybe didn't work well? One thing that I emphasize about the Marshall Plan that has not been recognized is how hard-headed it was. Um, Of course, the United States was extremely generous to its allies in Western Europe, but the Marshall Plan we consider a success today, partly because of the way we chose to define success. That is, we chose to write off the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Czechoslovakia, which, as you know, figures prominently in my book, was a country in play in 1947. And the United States after considerable internal debate, made the decision that we simply didn't have the military or diplomatic resources to bring Czechoslovakia into the Western sphere, so we wrote them off. And of course, it was tragic for the uh, Czechs, but I argue that it was critical to the success of the Marshall Plan for the United States to be realistic about which countries it could ultimately provide security to. I argue that after the end of supposed end of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, we didn't take that approach. We decided to expand NATO into Central and Eastern Europe effectively without funding it, despite the fact that the Russians made very, very clear um, well before Vladimir Putin became president that uh, they considered this to be a fundamental security threat to their country. So fast-forwarding today, I think we've put ourselves in an extremely uncomfortable position where we've made these firm security commitments to Central and Eastern Europe that we almost certainly could not meet. For example, in the case of the Baltics without having to rely on things that we would probably never use, like tactical nuclear weapons. So I think that was a big mistake. 
going back to the uh, the original period in, in in the late 1940s for a moment, one of the points you make that's very interesting is that the Soviet Union would have more effectively defeated the American objectives of the Marshall Plan if they had accepted the offer to join and simply tried to undermine it from the inside. They ended up not doing that. Um, can you kind of explain more about how they would have done that if they'd been a little more thoughtful and, and how the Americans sort of concluded that they wouldn't? Yes. Marshall was very determined that the aid invitation be made open to all of Europe, including the Soviet Union. But he knew that politically it would be impossible to have an, a, a Marshall Plan with the um, Soviets receiving aids from the United States. Certainly the Republican Congress would never accept it. So he put to George Kennan and his uh, other primary uh, advisors the question, what, what do we do about this? How do we, how do we make sure that the, the uh, Soviets do not actually accept the invitation? And I, I, I think this was one of the great geniuses of, uh, of George Kennan, uh, that he was able to develop a scheme that would ultimately provoke Stalin into rejecting the aid and thereby take the blame for splitting Europe. Uh, the State Department was very concerned that by proposing the Marshall Plan and making clear that the Soviets could not be part of it, that the United States would be blamed by world opinion for splitting Europe. But Stalin ultimately, by rejecting the plan, was um, seen as the villain of the peace, and the State Department really rejoiced over that. Stalin did flirt with the possibility of cooperating uh, with the Marshall Program for a while with two aims. First, of, of getting cheap credits from the United States um, once again, as he had during the war. And second, to undermine all the terms he didn't like, such as European uh, integra integration. But once he came to the conclusion that the Marshall Plan would ultimately be a security threat to the Soviet Union by reindustrializing West Germany and allowing it to rearm and by potentially drawing out some of the satellite countries, Czechoslovakia in particular, he felt that he had no choice but to um, fall right into this American stratagem. So one of the things they did, aside from the coup in Czechoslovakia and, and the Berlin blockade, one of the subtler things that the Soviets did in response was they had a lot of negative propaganda that they broadcast to Western Europe. It seems like there are two points that they did that actually sort of have rings of truth to them. One is the idea that there was a sacrifice of national sovereignty. And if you take the American money, then the Americans are going to be telling you what to do. The other one is that uh, the plan was motivated, at least in part, by the self-interest of the United States. Can you kind of explain more about this? Yeah, I'm well. There, of course, were elements uh, of truth to that. Uh, the United States did have economic and security interests in in Western Europe that it was defending through the Marshall Plan, and so it, you know it it did have firm requirements of the participants that they cooperate with the United States. And of course, they were sacrificing some degree of economic sovereignty in order to confederate economically and, as I emphasized earlier, ultimately political integration is going to become part of this 
process. So uh, although Stalin uh, obviously um, twisted this and used it to his own advantage, um, there is no doubt um, that the United States is injecting itself politically and militarily into European affairs in a way that it had never done before in peacetime. The Soviets had one other response that, that I can think of that you, that you describe in the book, in addition to the military and the propaganda, and that was the creation of something called Comic-Con. And you described this at one point, I think, as a reverse Marshall Plan. Can you kind of explain more about what that was? Yeah. Comic-Con was really Stalin's answer to the, the Marshall Plan to produce a form of communist integration of the um, Eastern European economies. Through this uh, web of bilateral trading arrangements that uh, Stalin dictates, he effectively winds up sucking as much resources out of his uh, supposed allies in Central and Eastern Europe as the United States injected into its allies in, in Western Europe. Uh, so it, it, it was a, a wholly disingenuous version of the Marshall Plan. Towards the end of the book, you have a, a nice sort of summary line in, in placing this book in context with your previous work, which is that if you look at the set of policies the Marshall Plan represented, it was essentially a, a total repudiation of everything that had been set up at Bretton Woods just a few years before. And arguably, one of the reasons for this is that one of the main American policymakers at Bretton Woods was Harry Dexter White, who was essentially a Soviet agent. Um, what are some of the other kind of big reasons that you have this such dramatic shift and like why did the U.S. get it so wrong in 44 and 45 compared to what it would do in 48 and 49? There were really um, four central elements of uh, Harry Dexter White's vision of the post-war world, which was um, ultimately adopted by uh, FDR. Um, the first was that the British Empire could be peaceably dismantled. The second was that the Soviet Union could be drawn into permanent peacetime collaboration. Uh, the third was that Germany could be profitably dismembered and deindustrialized. And the fourth was that a global economic system could be restored on the basis of uh, short-term multilateral loans through this new international monetary fund. By 1947, this is widely seen in the State Department as having been a complete disaster, um, that this one-world um, uh, vision was, in fact, going to produce more economic and physical insecurity uh, for the United States than the benefits that had been imagined from this uh, cooperation. Dean Acheson, um, who was uh, Marshall's primary deputy, concluded that these had been based, quote-unquote, on misconceptions of the state of the world around us, both in anticipating post-war conditions and in recognizing what they actually were when we came face-to-face -face with them. Only slowly, he said, did it dawn upon us that the whole world order that we had inherited from the 19th century was gone and that the struggle to replace it would be directed from two bitterly opposed and ideologically irreconcilable power centers. 
So what what is the the state of the world by 1947? The British Empire is collapsing. It is being liquidated as Harry Dexter White wanted, but it's doing so violently and creating a horrendous security vacuum for the United States. The Soviets showed that they could not be drawn into a permanent peacetime collaboration, that the Soviets were determined to expand their borders and their influence. Germany was indeed being dismembered and deindustrialized, and that was producing a humanitarian and economic disaster in Germany that the U.S. occupying forces were struggling to to deal with. And of course, the U.S. taxpayer was uh, funding this. And finally, nobody wanted to borrow money from the um, uh, IMF. They simply kept their currencies in convertible and international trade stagnated. So the State Department made a very conscious determination that they had to abandon this quote-unquote one-world vision. As um, Marshall's primary Russian translator, Charles, Charles Bolin, uh, wrote in August of forty-seven. Quote, unquote, the United States is now confronted with a condition in the world which is at direct variance with the assumptions upon which, during and directly after the war, major U.S. policies were predicated. Instead of unity among the great powers on the major issues of world reconstruction, both political and economic, there is complete disunity between the Soviet Union and the satellites on one side and the rest of the world on the other. There are, in short, two worlds instead of one. And Boland was quite determined to ensure that from here on in, U.S. intervention, U.S. foreign economic policy be based on securing the U.S. world, the democratic capitalist world, the border of which would be drawn in Western Europe. One last question for you. Ever since the Marshall Plan was first proposed, People have been talking about doing it in other places and other times. In fact, even while it was being debated in Congress, you make a point that there were American politicians who wanted a Marshall Plan for the U.S. South. So you know, having studied the actual Marshall Plan and getting a sense of what it was, what it wasn't, why it worked, why it didn't, what didn't work, do you think that experience really could be repeated elsewhere? Well, I'm, one of the most fascinating things about the Marshall Plan, I would argue, is the endless desire to repeat it. In the past five years alone, there have been calls for Marshall Plans in Ukraine, in Greece, in Southern Europe, in North Africa, Gaza, and most recently in Syria. Um, there have been proposals for Marshall Plans for global warming and global unemployment. Almost, it seems, for everywhere and everything, yet the old original one has never been replicated or even badly imitated. And I think that speaks to the unique historical circumstances in place at the time in 1947. I should emphasize that it's not as if the United States has not tried massive reconstruction aid as a a diplomatic tool um, for producing political realignment. Uh, For example, In Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. has already spent over $200 billion in reconstruction aid alone. That is more than 50% more than the totality of Marshall aid in current dollars. Yet we have almost nothing to show for it economically and politically. 
That is because of the vital security component in the Marshall Plan, which ultimately manifested itself in NATO. Whereas in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, these countries have been besieged continuously by domestic and foreign opponents. The United States was never able to reestablish a secure environment, and therefore uh, these great plans for political uh, reconstruction and rehabilitation really never got off the ground. Ben Steele, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. You can let us know what you think, as well as send along any ideas you might have for future episodes. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. And you can also rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find out about us, and it helps us improve the show from week to week. Thanks to Matt and to Ben for this week's interview. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.